Our Father in heaven, thank you that this world is not just random. Thank you that we are not just the product of blindless, pitiless chance. That this universe is not a fluke. But that you made it. And you are the creator and you are the sustainer. Thank you that you made it in and through and for Christ. And so we pray as we look at these verses together this morning, we pray that we might be freshly captivated by him. Enthused to live for him. We pray that you would be here among us. We pray that your spirit might bring conviction. We pray that you might help us to open our deaf ears. That we might hear your voice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Morning, I'd like you to start off by being brave with me. And I want you to come into the murky world of the heart of the Christian worker. The church pastor, the full-time Christian minister, whatever it might be. And I'd like to introduce you, please, to three possible unhelpful tendencies people like that might have. Three different dead ends, hypothetically, that people can go down. Now, I say the world of the church or Christian worker, but don't switch off if that's not you. I, I think you'll see the principles that we look at in this passage aren't just for folk who are sort of set aside in some way, but actually as we live together and as we minister to one another, they're all relevant for all of us. The first one is this. On the screen there, the first one is simply to try and minister or pastor in our own strength. To to look to our own self-sufficiency. It almost becomes a professional thing. It becomes a list of tasks that need to be done, a list of jobs, of opportunities, of meetings, of things to fill your day, to things to fill your week. And so easily it becomes head down. You look for the strength inside. You stoically crash on. Eyes delivered on getting it finished, delivering the goods, ticking the boxes, next sermon, next person, next meeting, next email, next thing, the next Sunday. Tick, 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 tick. And there we go. And I see that in my own heart. And I see that in the lives of fellow ministers around the city, around the church, around the country, around the world even. Many of whom are on the verge of burnout or have already done so because of the tendency to try and do things in our own strength. You might not feel it to that extreme, but I'm sure there are folk in this room who recognise that tendency. Maybe it's your job and that's you. Maybe you work for one of the many exciting parachurch organisations around Oxford. Maybe you work for Magdalen Road. Maybe you have opportunities to serve at Magdalen Road or in different places. How easy is it to try and do things in our own strength? Far too easy. The second one can be a quite insidious one, and it's to speak about the wrong thing, speaking too much about the wrong thing. So words are very powerful. We know that. We know that what we say can build people up or can break them down. But what's striking for people who have opportunities like I have is to talk too much about the wrong kind of thing. So we can easily get caught up in our own little sort of hobby horses, 
maybe in our, in our Bible study or our home group, you know that person is always going to talk about that thing whenever they get a chance because that's just where they are. There are things that preachers get excited about, soapboxes, fads and fashions. They may be important, they may be good, they may be valuable, they may have a place, but easily we can drift into getting distracted and, and the, the main thing stops becoming the main thing. It doesn't need to be simplistic or formulaic, but I take it... Whatever we're talking about as a church, foundationally, it needs to spring from our love for Christ, from the gospel of grace. But too easily we can speak too much about the wrong things. The third one, maybe this is particularly for those in Christian leadership, and that is, what is our definition of maturity in a church? What are we working towards? What does Christian maturity actually look like? How would you define it? What does success look like? Is it kind of sorted people? Is it too many folk in the room? Is it a busy church? Is it a together church? Is it a famous church? Where are we heading? What is our definition of success? What is our definition of maturity? So those three dangers... Number one, doing it our own strength. Number two, talking too much about the wrong things perhaps not enough about Christ, and thirdly, having a wrong definition of maturity. And I think as Paul moves into the next section of this letter, so 124 through to 2 verse 5, he brings the angle poised lamp in on himself and tries to show us what makes Paul tick, how he works, what he is all about. If you were here last week, um, or you've caught up online, then you will have heard from David that helping us understand just something more of who Jesus is. Just giving us a glimpse of his enormity, of the fact that he is the boss over all those things that the kids were thinking about. He's not just for church on a Sunday or home group on a Wednesday, but he is boss of your work and your life and school and everything. And so he kind of turns the binoculars around, as an image we've used, to, to, to try and de-shrink Jesus for the Colossians and for us, to see how big he is. And so it shouldn't surprise us, but the Jesus whom we heard about last week, second half of chapter one, is the Jesus whom Paul knows and loves and serves and is motivated and driven by this week. He is the Jesus who shapes and defines Paul the apostle, Paul the pioneer, the planter, the pastor, the theologian, the teacher, the disciple. And it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus drives Paul. But maybe it does, because too easily, I find my murky heart drifting towards the kind of things on the screen. Doing things in my own strength. Talking too much about the wrong kinds of things. Having a wrong definition of maturity. But if you just have a look down at the passage with me, just see that this passage is a passage all about Christ. And Paul talks into each of those three wrong tendencies on the screen. So just swoop over it with me and just see Jesus again and again and again. 1 verse 24, Christ's afflictions for his body, the church. 127, the message that's been revealed is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Verse 28, he is the one we proclaim so that you may be presented fully mature in Christ. Verse 29, contending with the energy that Christ provides. Why? Because well, 2 verse 2 to 3, that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures 
of wisdom and knowledge. Or verse 5, he's pleased with them because of how firm your faith in Christ is. Do you see, it's all about Jesus. The Jesus of last week with David is not just hypothetical. He is the one who drives Paul. And I want to say, a passage like this one this morning is a very helpful sort of MOT passage for people like me in ministry. I'm formally set aside folks, so I'm thinking myself, I'm thinking Andy as he heads to North Wales, God willing, King David as he settles with us, and we'll see more of the dents next week and formally introduce them and welcome them next week. Maybe Tom in the office, or Kitty, or, or other Tom, or other folk who are involved in ministry at Magdalen Road in a kind of formal set-aside level. Or maybe people who are involved in different church ministries or parachurch ministries around Oxford. But I want to say as well, a passage like this helps normal folk, of which I count some of you, it helps you know what to pray for us. It helps you know the kind of tendencies that sinful hearts have. But it helps you as well because we're all called to minister to one another. It's easy to have the sort of distinction between those who are set apart and the rest. But actually, the way we think it works at Magdalen Road is that we are all ministering to one another. And so we're going to zoom in on Paul. And we're going to see how Jesus infects the way Paul does ministry. And we'll do it through these three lenses on the screen. Thinking, where are we tempted to do things in our own strength? And what's Paul's answer here? We'll be thinking, where do we maybe talk too much about the wrong things? And what's Paul's answer here? And have we got the wrong definition of maturity? What definition of maturity are we actually working from? And what's Paul's answer from this passage here? I think there'll be loads of stuff for you to pick up in home groups as well. Um, I feel like I'm just scratching the surface. So if you're not in a home group, let me encourage you to chat to James and he will find you one. Um, if you are, let me encourage you to turn up this week and there'll be some good stuff to be thinking and praying through. Oh, actually, before we jump in, I want to help catch you up if you've not been around or you've not been listening in. So let me just try and give you a bit of an overview of Colossians so far. Um, stick with me. I think this will help us to see how this bit fits into the whole book. Do you remember the situation? Paul is writing to a church. He's never visited them, but he has heard stuff about them that is concerning him. He hears they've been kind of sold silver bullets of what Christian maturity can be like. Here's how you grow up quickly as a Christian. It sounds like they're saying. And it's kind of stuff to do with special knowledge. It's stuff to do with fasting and festivals and engaging in angelic worship in some sense. It's Jesus as a starter, but then these silver bullets who will grow you up quick and mature you. And yet the problem is, as Paul says, they don't bring maturity and growth and vitality. They bring death. These things are dead ends. And what Paul is saying is, do you want to grow up as a Christian? Do you want to mature? Then the answer is Christ. He is the one. The answer is to better grasp all that you already have in him, rather than grabbing in these extra things and thinking they will work. Jesus is sufficient, says Paul. He is sufficient for you, Colossian Church. He is sufficient for us, Magdalen Road. And he is sufficient for Paul, as he will show us here. This is what it looks like for Paul to know that Christ is sufficient as he ministers. And what I want to try and do um, as we look at these verses is a sort of 
pick up three different threads that I think weave through the verses that I think will answer each of our three concerns that we started with. And what we'll see is Paul firstly contending in the strength of Christ. This is a passage, this is a section about the hard work and suffering of Christian ministry. Have a look down with me, verse 24, 124. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Or 25, I have become its servant by the commission God gave me. And even before we dive in, just take at the start, just take that initial thing, gospel ministry is hard work. There is suffering involved. In a bit he will talk about more of being what a servant means, of what it means to contend. But just on the way past, I want to urge you to honour those who, who, who serve us here at Magdalen Road. Whether it be formal role-thinking elders or deacons or staff or home group leaders or junior church leaders out there now, or whatever it might be, people on various teams. But also the less formal role of just normal church life. Unnoticed faithfully week by week serving us here the people who get here early to put chairs out so that we're not all sat on the floor or people who get here early to do the PA so I haven't got a shout people behind the scenes who are meeting for the Irving building who have already met this morning the kind of people we forget to say thank you to I'm just struck as we start that gospel ministry, normal gospel ministry, is about serving. It's hard work. It's suffering. We should probably say thank you more often. But thank you. Thank you for being prepared to suffer for Christ, for the sake of his body, for the church. But then verse 24. What does it actually mean? I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions. Two questions leap out. The starter for 10 is, how can he rejoice in his suffering? Is he weird? Is he some sort of masochist? Is he the kind of person who runs ultra marathons? What is going on with Paul? Why is he rejoicing in his suffering? What is that? The second one is, what does he mean when he says, I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions? I'm going to tackle the second one first, the fill up in my flesh, Christ's afflictions thing. I'll have a go at that anyway. And I think that will then help us understand what it means, why he rejoices in his suffering. What is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions? So we're saying there are books on this. There are many books on this. It is hotly debated. What is still lacking? Well, I think we can say definitely that Paul's suffering is not redemptive. That is, it's not the fact that Jesus gets 80% of the way there, but Paul's the kind of completer finisher type. So he comes and sorts it out and does the final 20. Paul gets us over the line, Paul boosts what Jesus has started. Now, that doesn't work. Remember the context from last week? Remember the ideas about context and the importance of context as well? We've already known Jesus' blood shed on the cross is enough. Verse 20, for example, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Peace is there. 
Reconciliation is there. Redemption is there already. And so if Paul's filling up in his flesh is not redemptive, then what is it? I think it's fair to say there are lots of ideas out there, but no one's completely sure. I think there are some things that we can be sure about. I think what he means is there is still suffering to be endured by the church, by Christ's body, for the mission of Jesus to be accomplished. That is, Jesus has done all you need, all that's needed to redeem the people of God. But this message needs to be got out there. This message needs to be shared that it might bear fruit. Jesus was hated, he suffered for his mission. Paul was hated, he suffered for the mission of Jesus. We might participate in those sufferings as we may be hated and suffer for the mission of Jesus. We and he are tied together as we continue that suffering, as the message of Jesus goes out. I wonder if that changes our view of suffering. I wonder if that changes our view of this kind of labour. We forget the perspective and we moan about the reality of having to suffer. We moan about serving or preparation or being on teams or that kind of thing. But isn't it striking how this just seems to be a normal and expected part of the Christian life, of suffering as Christ's body, as the message about him spreads and works and transforms and brings life? Well, so Paul rejoices. Paul rejoices in being counted worthy to stand alongside Christ and suffer as part of his body for the message to get out, the message about redemption to work. So he's not a masochist. He recognizes the privilege. He rejoices because he knows the one whom he follows. So there's language of, of suffering, of affliction. There's, I think possibly at the very heart of the passage as well, this language of contending is right there in the middle of the passage. You get it twice. You see 1 verse 29 and then 2 verse 1 as well. And Paul comes and puts cards on the table and says, okay, for you, for the church in Laodicea, for all of those whom I have not met personally, I contend for you. What I'm saying matters. It's the language of fighting, of struggling, of laboring. It's, it's a strenuous thing. It's busy, it's hard work. And just on the way past them, we catch why this is so important that Paul writes, at least in his mind, some things are worth contending for, says Paul. Maybe at times we can agree to disagree. Maybe there are secondary things. But there are some primary things that are vital and worth contending for. You Colossians, you are in danger of wandering away from Christ. The main thing is no longer the main thing. So I, I contend for you. But then with that as well, We've got suffering and then we've got contending and our hearts are sinking slightly. And then verse 29 though. To this end I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. God equips his people for the tasks that he calls them to. And we think about running away. 
And we say, do you know what my life looks like? You think I'm up for contending and suffering on top of all that's going on? I can barely make it through from week to week. And Paul says, Paul says, don't forget Christ. Hasn't that been our testimony as a church these last five years or so with discussions in the background about bricks and mortar? The Lord seems to have provided the right people at the right time with the right gifts. And we continue to look to him. Let me ask you a question though. How would you know that God's power is at work in your life? If I was to ask you that over coffee afterwards, what would you say? How would you know that God's power is at work in your life? Maybe sometimes we think, well, when things are going well, do you know, when, when it's all just easy and things drop into place, we found the kind of sweet spot and everything's working, then I know that God's power is at work in my life. But isn't it striking with Paul here? His example is rather it's when we're struggling and we're laboring, laboring and we're persevering. That is when Christ's energy is powerfully working in him. It's not so much the sweet spot, it's the suffering and perseverance and keeping going. And so you're scratching your head thinking, how can I prepare this Bible study? I, I, I haven't got time, I don't get it. There are people in the room who are so much cleverer than me. Or when you're dealing with your kids at home and having a godly parent moment. Or when you're dealing with your kids in junior church and the groups and you're thinking they're just bouncing off the walls. Or or for the team heading to Bista to plant, you're thinking, is this going to last? Is this going to go past nine months? Or you're trying to pluck up your courage to talk to your friend about Jesus. And your knees are knocking and your heart is racing. Or or even you're queuing up at the church for a barbecue. And there are folk from the local area to talk to. And your knees are knocking and your heart is racing. That is when God is at work in you. When he is equipping us to live for him. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. And my experience is that God deliberately pushes us out of our depths. So we have to rely on him. So we have to know that we are weak. And so our glory hunting hearts know that it's him and not us. And so we say to him, Lord, I'm just not sure I can do this. And he says, of course you can't. That's the point. Let's do it together. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. And what does this ministry of Christ look like, this contending in the strength of Christ? Well, it's, it's very verbal. Did you notice that? Paul uses an interesting word as he talks about this message of Christ, and it's the word mystery. Again, have a look down. It comes up three times. In our passage, you get it in 1 verse 26, the mystery that's been kept hidden for ages and generations. Get it in 27 as well, the glorious riches of this mystery which is Christ in you. And then you get it in 2 verse 1 too. So 2 verse 1 as well. Um, The full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. And this, this mystery, what's that? Well, When the Bible talks about a mystery, it's the end of the detective story type mystery. That which was a secret, that has now been unveiled, 
and is obvious, that which was unknown is now known by everyone. And this mystery then is the gospel. It's the good news about Jesus. It is the God taking on flesh in Christ to come and live among his people and to gather his people, even the Gentiles, like the Colossians, and then to come and take us to be with him forever. It's the mystery of how a God who is perfectly pure and holy and a people who are not can be reconciled and redeemed. And you see verse 26, it had been hidden, but now it has been made known. God's plan has been enacted. His ministry, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension even were public. And so when he says mystery, he's not talking about some kind of weird secret knowledge, something that just a few people get or know about. It's not the kind of mystery we've had in Colossians almost with this elite few who are puffed up and know these kind of special, clever things. No, it's, it's the mystery of a people who look back and see the guys back there didn't know what was going on. They were kept hidden for ages and generations. Or it's a mystery that looks to the now and sees the Colossians with Jesus living in them, been close to them, and then ahead as well, verse 27, the hope of glory. That is the all-encompassing content of Paul's message to the Colossians. That is the mystery. That is what he speaks about and keeps speaking about, and it's a great message. Again, if you look down, there's a, there's a repetition of an interesting word. 1 verse 27 and at 2 verse 1, in a non-rhetorical way, what is that repeated word? Looking at me won't help. Pardon? No, not contend. We've had that one, but is there? Riches. Is that striking? The message of Jesus is a precious message. It, It brings with it riches, but Paul's not talking about money and stuff and things. He's talking about true riches, far better than money. It's the riches of having him, of having Christ, of being complete in Christ. It is a mystery that brings richness, and it's about a person. Isn't that striking? Again, I'm struck by that as you read these verses. It is, it is about a person. Paul double underlining, 128, he is the one we proclaim. 2.2, two, the mystery of God, namely Christ in whom are hidden. Jesus must be the one whom we talk about. The message of him, the mystery of him, he is the one. And as soon as we begin to drift towards other things, which we so easily can, and we've all got hobby horses and agendas and stuff that we get excited by, as soon as we value other things above him, we need to ask hard questions. Are we a church where the message of Christ is central, foundational, vital? Again, maybe this is a surprise for you. You're looking at me, kind of judging me, thinking, well, how can you drift onto things other than Christ? Some kinds of things, perhaps, that we might drift towards or be tempted to drift towards. One, in our context, it must be bricks and mortar and buildings. We've mentioned that already this morning. We're almost there, but keep praying. He is the one we proclaim. 
Again, in our context, church planting, maybe. We want to be a church that plants churches. We recognise the goodness of God to us and our ability to be able to send people out. But that can easily become ultimate, as can many other ministries, many other things that matter to us. I'm aware in some churches there can be a particular blessing or an individual or a personality or a ministry that can take center stage. They can become the focus rather than the message of Christ. Rather, he is the one we proclaim. Or maybe there are other messages. And you do see kind of fads and things go round and round in the Christian world from time to time, things that just keep coming back. Maybe like with the Colossians, here is the fast track of how to grow and mature. And suddenly the message of Christ is sidelined and other things that may be good things come in. Or even, come and chat to me afterwards if you disagree, but even when I think we can sometimes talk about Christianity and it becomes a philosophy or an idea or a structure or a theory and it becomes more about this framework than about a person. But rather Paul says he is the one we proclaim. How did he do it? It's teaching and admonishing. Teaching is kind of a more positive thing. Admonishing, if you like, is a more negative, correcting thing. It's what Paul is doing in Colossians. He teaches and he admonishes. That is the letter. So contending in the strength of Christ rather than self, with the message of Christ rather than something else, what for? For, them, for their maturity in Christ. We said at the start of the series, this is in one sense a book about growth, a book about maturing as a, as a church, as Christians. There's nothing wrong with that. But as we began, what does maturity look like? If I were to say, press pause and write down on a piece of paper your definition of Christian maturity, and then we compared them, I wonder what we would say can we measure maturity? Can we assess Christian maturity? Again, have a look down at some of the verses that Paul gives us. This is what Paul seems to be contending about in the strength of Christ, with the message of Christ for. And again, maturity is linked with Christ. See, so 128, he is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. We'll think more about that in Christ phrase next week. Or 2 verse 2 again. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You see, in a sense as well, maturity for a person, maturity for a church looks like Christ again. It's a total and a real grasp of Jesus, full riches of complete understanding, who he is, what he's done, and why it matters. And maybe you're thinking, I wasn't here last week, I need to listen in to the previous sermon, because I need to have my vision expanded by Christ. I see why those descriptions matter if full riches of complete understanding matters. 
But more than that, have a look at 2.2. Maturity is tied in with these two things, encouraged in heart and united in love. That is Paul's goal for the Colossians. Encouraged in heart, united in love. The encouraged in heart thinks strengthened, strength comforted from their very core. But then united in love is a church increasingly mindful of, aware of, thankful for all they have seen in Christ. And that is seen in their love for each other. And again, that's a challenge, isn't it? We think through what does maturity look like, at least in part, it needs to look like, encouraged in heart, united in love. How does that match with our definition? We've said it before, the mature Christian is not simply someone who has a head full of information and knows the Bible study answers and can pass the exams. It's not even seen in the person who knows their Bible so well and will quote their Bible to you, at you. Maturity is the one for whom theology shapes life. What we know of God shapes who we are. And I wonder particularly, actually, who we are when we're up against it, when life is hard. Maybe it's easy when stuff is kind of plain sailing, but their maturity, verse 2, really matters when things are going wrong, when things aren't quite as we hoped they would be. And yet if they're... If their heart, if the very core of who they are has been changed, comforted, encouraged, then they're able to keep going. That's when maturity shines through. That's when you see it in someone. When all else falls away, and yet they're still encouraged in heart. The united in love thing is interesting as well. Presumably... The potential issue is that there's a tendency to split and divide amongst the Colossians. Presumably that's why Paul says it. Maybe this confusion in the church, maybe this false teaching is causing the church to slightly shatter. Maybe there are cliques and factions and issues going on. And and Paul wants them to prove their maturity by unity in love for each other. And again, maybe one for home groups. But then you think maturity, and we think, how about us? How about us as a church, corporate? How about us as individuals, Christians, followers of Jesus? Are we mature? Has our theology shaped us? Does, does Sunday impact Monday? Has it moved from theories and ideas and Stuff about Jesus to the real life, if you like. Especially when we're up against it. Encouraged in heart, even in the mess. United in love, even when they're so annoying. What definition of maturity are we working from? It's not always the case, but isn't it a precious thing when sometimes you meet older brothers and sisters who personally know the riches of Christ? You see this this beautiful maturity in them. 
Because it's been a life of theology impacting daily life, daily living. It just kind of flows out of them. Maybe even despite being older, some of the frustrations and battles of older age, there's this contented, quiet, calm assurance. A Christ-likeness. In a culture of moaning and complaints and grumbling and There's something different about them. Jesus, his gospel of grace has so infected them, taken over them, and everything's changed. And despite all that's going on, despite failing bodies, failing minds even, you see this strengthened in heart, united in love. Wouldn't it be amazing to be the kind of church where we are known because of Christ? where we are shaped by him. A people who minister and work in his strength and his energy, where we push the glory and we say, no, 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 sorry, that's not me. That was him. He did that. He enabled that. With a message that's foundationally about him and his gospel of grace. And we might annoy them, but they hear the message about Jesus. But then thirdly, maturing in Christ-likeness, a church strengthened and changed, united in love. We don't just know our Bibles, we don't just know our God, but we're changed by him. A church where Jesus is centre stage. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, where we are tempted to do things in our own strength. Please make us a people who look to you and who contend in the strength of Christ. Father, where we are a people who too easily talk too much about the wrong things, please make us a people who talk about Christ a lot. Heavenly Father, where we are tempted to work from a wrong definition of maturity. Might we please be a people increasingly who who value maturity in Christ. Might that be our goal? We long that we would be a people in this area known because of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Friends, will you stand with me as we sing our final song? Isn't it extraordinary that the Jesus... Thank you, Gwyneth, for standing. That's fine. Isn't it extraordinary, wouldn't it, this Jesus whom we know 